All right. Welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm joined once again, I think for the third time now by Simone Rascala. Simone, welcome back to Creedal Catholic. Thank you so much, Zach. I'm so happy to be back. Likewise, no, I'm excited to talk about St. Edith Stein with you. Uh, and for my listeners who have heard Simone before, she needs no introduction. But for those who haven't, Simone is currently the director of program growth for this wonderful organization called Endow. Uh, Endow is a women's ministry, focuses on catechetical formation and spiritual development for women specifically. And they do a lot of good work, run retreats, book studies, uh, bio- biographical studies, all kinds of things. Uh, but, but Simone runs uh, program growth for them. Previously, she worked at a Catholic high school in Phoenix, Arizona, as the chair of the theology department. And she is also a fellow of the Institute of Catholic Theology based on the campus of St. Thomas the Apostle in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, So lots of cool stuff in her background. And she's been on the show before to talk about the dangers of gossip and talk about St. Catherine of Siena. So we had some really good conversations previously, and we are doing it again. We had so much fun the first couple of times to talk about St. Edith Stein, also known as Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. So, Simone, I'm going to read a paragraph-long bio of St. Edith Stein, just for our, our listeners who may not be familiar at all with her life story, but I'm eager to hear from you a little bit more about who she really was once I get through this paragraph-long bio. So let me read this, and then I'll pitch it over to you to tell us more about who St. Edith Stein was. Sure. So this bio is from Catholic.org. It is not original. Uh, I did not write it, but I think it, it well captures a lot of the, the highlights of her life and sort of establishes the contours in a helpful way for our conversation. So this paragraph reads, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, parentheses, Edith Stein, virgin and martyr, born in 19, or 1891 in Breslau, Poland, was the youngest child of a large Jewish family. She was an outstanding student and was well-versed in philosophy with a particular interest in phenomenology. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. Eventually, she became interested in the Catholic faith. And in 1922, she was baptized at at the Cathedral Church in Cologne, Germany. Eleven years later, Edith entered the Cologne. uh, This is Cologne Carmel, but I think it's the the convent uh, of Carmelites in Cologne. Because of the ramifications of politics in Germany, Edith, whose name in uh, in the faith was Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, so her her religious name when she took her when she made her profession, was sent um, to the uh, to the Abbey of the Carmelites at Echt in Holland. When the Nazis conquered Holland, Teresa was arrested and, with her sister Rosa, was sent to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. Teresa died in the gas chambers of Auschwitz in 1942 at the age of 51. In 1987, she was beatified in the large outdoor soccer stadium in Cologne by Pope John Paul II. Out of the unspeakable human suffering caused by the Nazis in Western Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, there blossomed the beautiful life of dedication, consecration, prayer, fasting, and penance of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Even though her life was snuffed out by the satanic evil of genocide, her memory stands as a light undimmed in the midst of evil, darkness, and suffering. She was canonized on October 11th, 1998. So that again, a paragraph long summary there, but Simone, there's a lot of stuff in there that we've missed. (laughs) Uh, So tell us a little bit more. Who was St. Edith Stein? St. Edith Stein, who was she? She was so many things as your, your little biography mentioned, but she was a seeker of truth ultimately. And she was willing to take uh, her intellectual journey, philosophical journey, experiential journey, all the way to to the end uh, until she was satisfied and found her place in the Catholic faith. So, you know, she was she was a Jewish girl. She was an, an atheist. 
She converted to Catholicism. She uh, also was a saint and also a martyr, considered a martyr by the church, which was controversial. Uh, she was one of the, you know, few female philosophers and definitely a few female philosophers who was interested in the, in the uh, school of phenomenology under Edmund Husserl. She was a lecturer, a teacher, a writer, uh, so, so many of those things. But I think the, the, the thing that encapsulates all of them is that she was a seeker of truth and would not take anything at face value. Um, so there's so many. Which one do you want to talk about first? Zach? <laughs> no, I, I love the way that you describe that seeker of truth, because that captures so much. I mean, first of all, God is truth. So a seeker of truth is someone who, by definition, is pursuing God. I think this, that accurately describes St. Edith Stein and certainly any saint as well, seeker of truth. In her case, of course, as an academic, as someone who is pursuing and flourishing in the intellectual life, someone who is in particular studying philosophy and theology, mm -hmm. I think it's doubly true, but we can see this shape her life as we study what happened. And as you said, she lost her faith, I think, at the age of 14. Mm -hmm. uh, and by lost her faith, you know, faith isn't something that you just sort of lose one day and can't find again. Uh, rather, it's, it's always the result of a conscious choice. But she made a conscious choice to stop praying, I think she says in, in one of her uh, sort of biographical letters. Yes. Um, and from that point forward, said she stopped believing. And then she entered, uh, well, actually, she stopped her schooling at that point, too. But I think a couple years later, resumed her, her uh, schooling, mm -hmm. uh, went on to university, graduated with, of course, the highest of marks because she was absolutely brilliant. But, but through her study of philosophy, she became convinced eventually, it took several years, but she became convinced eventually of the truth of the Catholic faith. And I just have to think that that's such an inspiring thing for everyone today, but especially for academics. I think so many people uh, today in any profession, but I think especially in the academy, especially in journalism, are more interested in pursuing a point of view or advocating for a point of view than they are in seeking truth. And she stands as a great example of what, what, what an academician should be trying to do. And that yes. is get to the bottom of what, of what is really going on. And it's just really inspiring that her, her seeking led her to the Catholic church. And it's even more telling perhaps that her seeking continued from there. And it didn't just end when she entered the church, but rather it eventually led her to become a discalced Carmelite in the, uh, in the same order of St. Teresa of Avila, and eventually to give her life. So I really like your your characterization of that. I think in this age that, that we live in, where truth is so often uh, eschewed or viewed mm -hmm. as relative or simply disregarded and not really cared about, someone like St. Edith Stein is really, really important for our age. I think so, because she did lose her faith very young. And we know that young people who are in, even if you're in religious families and you have religious parents as Edith's parents were, although her dad died when she was fairly young, her mother was a pious Jew. And for Edith to lose her faith was very heartbreaking for her, but she did fall out of it. You know, she took a break from school, went to go live with her sister and her brother-in-law who weren't very religious. And it just, she just fell out of faith. Um, so that's something interesting for religious and Catholic parents that, you know, your children at a very young age have to be formed and have a mind of their own and need, need their intellectual questions answered and pursued. And there needs to be kind of a culture of seeking truth. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, her, she was exceptional in the fact that in a field that was dominated by men um, and she, she was rejected a professorship and not because of her intellect, but because she was female. 
and then later a second time lost a professorship because of being Jewish. So it, it really wasn't at all about her intellect. And Husserl, who, who was her mentor and her advisor, um, you know, said that, you know, if women should be professors, Edith should be one, right? So he, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, wasn't really for female professors, but he thought for sure if there were that Edith should get it. Um, so she would be but, what we call in that instance, the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> exactly. But it's, you know, it's interesting because philosophy now is seen uh, unfairly. So I think it's kind of a flaky field. Whereas in her time, it was dominated by men. And you're more likely as a woman to enter the medical field uh, than the philosophical field. That's how seriously philosophy was taken in that time. Um, but I, I will say, know, however, she, Simone, that I think yeah. philosophy as it's practiced in many uh, modern departments in universities is pretty flaky. <laughs> so that is true. So it's that not necessarily true. an unfair characterization <laughs> of it now. I think, that's a good point. Yeah. That's evaluating point. like the practice of the discipline of philosophy is different from evaluating the discipline of philosophy. But, but I take your point. No, that is true. And most, a lot of philosophy departments now kind of just start at modern philosophy and kind of skip everything that happened before Spinoza. So, you know, anyway, um, you're, you're correct in that assessment. Thanks for keeping it real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, she, she was, um, she was exceptional in this way. And you know, but God, you really used her to, I mean, she couldn't be a professor as she wanted to, um, and ended up teaching at girls' schools and was formed by, you know, I mean, this is after her conversion, but even before her conversion, although she was intellectually engaged and academically engaged, and one of my favorite kind of historical trivia about her is that she would go to the intellectual retreats and Thomistic retreats of Jacques and Raisa Maritain. Um, but it was actually the witness of the Catholics who were also very intellectual and philosophical and theological, but it was their witness of holiness that actually um, were the stepping stones to con her conversion and then her encounter with St. Teresa of Avila. And that not only kind of sealed the deal on her Catholic conversion, but it also sealed the deal on her vocation to Carmelites, even though she didn't fulfill that for a long time. Yeah, that's great. Well, on your point about losing the faith at a young age and, you know, parents being aware of the need to form their children. I was reading an article in the Atlantic the other day and the writer was describing how she lost her faith as a youngster, a young Catholic person, because she would ask her parents questions and they didn't have satisfactory answers. And I don't know what these questions were, but, uh, you know, kids can, kids can ask some pretty big questions. Um, yeah. my, uh, my daughter was asking me, the other day, like who made God, right? And that's, you know, if 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 if, if God's responsible for making everything, then uh, there would be a natural next question, which is, you know, who makes God? Um, and so there are substantive questions that children can ask, and parents need to be equipped to answer them, or at the very least, if the if the parents themselves can't answer them. And I understand that you know metaphysics or the nature of God are not in everyone's wheelhouse. That's okay. Right. But, but what parents need to do is communicate to their children that there are answers that the faith has for all of those questions. Right. I mean, the, 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 yes. the, the probability that a 10 year old is going to come up with a question that dooms the entire Catholic faith is, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want to say impossible, but I would say it is, uh, not statistically significant. I, I completely agree. I mean, it's so beautiful for children to model philosophical thinking, theological thinking, and, uh, a climate of intellectual curiosity in a family. If, if, if your child asks you a question you can't answer, 
what a beautiful thing to say. Why don't we go and discover the answer together? If you have the question, there has to be an answer and let's figure it out together. And then the child can see that in fact, it doesn't, it, there's, there's nothing wrong with seeking the answer and the truth together. And it's, it's very humbling and beautiful for the, for the child to be modeled that. I don't, I don't really see that enough. I see a lot of parents as kind of put, you know, kind of patronize their children because they're young. I mean, they're kids that are asking super, as you mentioned, super scientific questions. Um, and we live in a culture where faith and reason are contradictory. And of course they're not. I mean, the science as a field came out of the church. Um, but, you know, you're, you, you continue to emphasize this false dichotomy between faith and science and faith and reason when you don't take the time to address those questions. And it's not for want of resources. All the resources are out there. You just have to go in search of them. So, yeah, I think this is ain't for a time. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, I would just say to parents who are listening out there, right, it's okay if you don't know the, the answer. Like like you were just saying, Simone, you can go find the answer together. But what an, what a wonderful invitation from God for you to explore your own faith further when your child asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, what a wonderful invitation. Um, it's exactly, I love that. It's a wonderful invitation. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about St. Edith Stein's conversion. So um, she, she was in, I think it was in 1921. So she had been in the Academy for, I think eight years or so by this point, she had gotten involved in phenomenology and we'll, we'll talk about that with the next kind of question I, I wanted to ask you. Um, but she read this uh, wonderful autobiography of a doctor of the church, um, who we're also going to be exploring on this podcast in, in a few weeks. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, Simone? Yeah, she was, I, I, the name escaped me of the, of the friends she was visiting, but they, they made an invitation to her, you know, our, you know, you're a, an intellectual, our library is open for you. Just choose a book, feel free to just borrow any book and read it. And she read it start to finish, I think in one evening. It was, or, yeah, it was one night. I read that. And I was like, was, come on. I, I wish I, I could know. do that. That's amazing. I know. Edith, um, side tangent. I think Edith is also so great for women because she doesn't fit any stereotypes. She, she can appeal to any kind of woman, really. Um, so she's just cool. But, you know, and she reads it and she closes the book and says, this is the truth. And uh, and you see how conversion is such a delicate thing because even though at that moment it all those she called them like living images of kind of the saints of her life her friends um you know she realized okay this is it for me it to to receive not only your conversion the grace of conversion the grace of faith but also your your state in life as a consecrated as a nun as a carmelite specifically is really a double grace <laughs> so yeah, no but even that wasn't fulfilled for a long time after that and even then again it, the social unrest the the growing threat of nazism all those negative things were leading her to her vocation to as a carmelite god writing straight with crooked lines is incredible because so many of the worldly things for edith didn't go right you know she was supposed to be a professor she didn't get that because of being a Jew, being a woman, be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, wanting to go on and to do other things and then realizing, in fact, the Nazi threat is high and then being called as a Carmelite. I mean, all these kind of negative things. I mean, these are negative things. I don't know what's more negative than 
than Nazi occupied yeah, seriously. <laughs> state, um, Germany, but you know, it led her to her, to her state and life, to her vocation as a Carmelite nun. So one of the things that struck me about her conversion story is how her family received it. And as you'd imagine, they did not receive it well. I don't know yeah. about this, but I, to my knowledge, um, and it's not that I've researched this question uh, extensively, so you might know more than I, Simone, but to my knowledge, no one other than her sister Rosa became Catholic. Do you know of anyone else in her family who did? I don't. I think I think only Rosa converted. Uh, the her entering, it was really her entrance into Carmel that shattered, in many ways, her relationship with her mother. Um, and that I, I imagine, first of all, the sacrifice of the vocation. I mean, being a cloister is not for the faint of heart. And right. then on top of it, the mother that you were very close to views it as utter betrayal, especially not just against, it's not against Judaism or the Jewish faith, but to be seeing it as a betrayal of not only your faith, but also leaving the family at a time when the Nazi threat was increasing, definitely felt like a betrayal for her family. And you can see how they felt. I mean, it's, it's understandable. Yeah. I mean, there's a, uh, there's a line in this study that, that, um, that I've, that you gave me the, uh, sort of you know review copy of for endow mm -hmm. in which um that's explained that stein felt like her mother was questioning her motives for becoming catholic and you might think what possible motives could you have for becoming catholic uh and you know sacrificing what you had until you remember oh wait this is as the nazis are rising to power in germany yeah there's a lot of incentive for a jewish person to reject their own identity and their own heritage now of course that's not what stein was doing Right. She was, as we already said, seeking the truth, but that's how she at least feared her mother saw it, that, that she was betraying not just her family, but her people. Um, yeah. and, and this, and this comes into play later on in her life that I think we'll also talk about just where he, where she, you know, in many respects found, uh, found kind of solace or found identity in the life of Esther from the old Testament, mm -hmm. um, a, a Jew who gave her life to save her people. And we could talk more about that as well. But that, that really struck me about her conversion. You know, and I think any Catholic who comes from a non-Catholic family or a non-Catholic community writ large has lots of friends and family who are not in the church. I think any, any Catholic can identify to some degree with that difficulty that she has. Yes. In becoming Catholic, she is seen, rightly or wrongly, she's seen as forsaking a lot of what she had. And it's a real challenge for those that you, quote, unquote, leave behind. Um and yet there's a beautiful kind of coda to this story where, as you mentioned, Carmel was really the place that when she entered Carmel is when it kind of broke her relationship with her mom. She entered uh, with the permission of the um, the prioress there and said, I, I really want to write to my mother weekly. And it's, you know, they're cloistered, so you're not really supposed to have that contact. But obviously with the, with the permission of your superior, um, you can have exceptions. And so she had this exception that she could write to her mother and try to sustain that relationship for several years the letter she would write dutifully and her, her mother never responded. So, I mean, that, that alone is just crushing. And I cannot imagine writing hundreds of letters to your family member only to have them never respond. But then the amazing thing is, and this is where the sort of cool, cool coda story of God's grace comes in. Um, her mother eventually got sick and passed away. Um, and it turns out that as, uh, as, uh, Edith Stein was making her final vows, mm -hmm. um, she felt her mother very much with her and yeah. she later on found out that it was exactly at that moment, that hour that her mother had passed away. 
Um, what so, an amazing, what an incredible gift. Yeah. A consolation, right? Yeah, truly. exactly. An incredible consolation. So, so that's a really cool coda. Um, and you know, that doesn't say anything about her mother's final resting place, of course. Um, but it does, it does say something, I think about the way that the Holy spirit, um, can work and does work, uh, in the hearts of people and, and through, by the way, faithful Catholics who are always praying for those who are outside the church, like St. Edith Stein was for her mother. And for her, and for all the, I mean, her sacrifice, uh, and eventually it was in the form of martyrdom was for the conversion of the Jewish people. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was uh, something I learned from reading this study, Simone, but I love that part. I mean, as you know, I named one of my children, Esther. It's, it's a beautiful name. It's a Marian name because Esther is a type of Mary in the old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she is just this amazing woman who offers her life, puts it all on the line to save her people. And because she does that, by the way, um, the, the line uh, all the way to Christ, uh, the rod of Jesse is preserved and eventually established. So, uh, I mean, that's really cool. And it's even cooler to read this story of Edith Sina, how she saw Esther in herself, right? Not to say that she's, you know, like drawing this direct comparison and saying, I am Esther, I am saving my people, but, but the, but the, right. But the sacrificial act of Esther giving everything for her people is exactly what Edith Stein did. Now the skeptic might say that's ridiculous. She didn't sacrifice anything to say, like no one was saved by her sacrifice, but let's just pause there and look to this heavenly economy of grace and remember all of the prayers that Edith Stein was offering. And remember this, this amazing sacrifice that was in fact her martyrdom where she died for Christ. And we can talk about why that's, you know, sort of considered controversial in some circles, but her martyrdom is, you know, it is a, it is a Holocaust. Uh, it is, a, it is an offering um, that she gave in uh, total confidence and total trust of God's mercy. And in the sacrament, uh, the sacramental economy of grace, that carries immense weight, right? So we can't just look at her and say like she died and so did all these other people. And so there was no effect. Um, that's not how, that's not how this works. The, the fact remains that she was a Christian who died in God's grace and died with the explicit intention of dying and suffering for her people. Uh, and so I thought that was a really cool thing to think about. Yeah. It gave me chills the first time that I read, um, that I mean, when, when the time of the arrest came and her sister Rosa was seen to be shaking that, you know, she transmitted, if you will, her, her virtue of courage, of, of fortitude and said, come Rosa, let us go for our people. Yeah. That so was, she, knew that what, was crazy. she knew what she was doing. She yeah. knew what she, she was willing. I mean, this is the goal of our life is to unite our wills to God's right. right? That, and she was doing that. And this was a very radical to run to that cross which is what is worse that I can't have been being in a concentration camp, right? Let us go for our people. She was very aware of what she was doing and why she was doing it. And it's just so moving. Come Rosa, let us go for our people. Yeah, that was definitely a powerful part of that narrative. My favorite part of reading about her sort of reaction of what was happening is this encounter that she had with um, a young man while she was, on her way, getting herded by the Nazis into these train cars, et cetera. And she was describing to him where they were headed. And she said, we are heading East. And that was factually true in the sense that they were headed, you know, towards Auschwitz, the eventual place of her death. But it was spiritually true as well, because we look to the East for the place where resurrection happens. So East uh, is a, is a symbol of heaven of the new Jerusalem. It's where the new Jerusalem descends 
And so that that phrase itself is also loaded with with physical, but also spiritual and deeper meaning where she's very cognizant. I mean, she knew she was she was going to her death. She, she knew that she was not going to summer camp or just to go to a labor camp. She knew she was going to die. It's why she was going for her people. It's why she was um, so yeah. identifying with Esther here. Um, and she said, we're heading east. And there's just there's something about that oh. that gives me chills. Right. That she Eerie. she knows she knows a better place awaits and that that her her true calling is in heaven. And that's just so powerful. It's so Christ-like. I mean, going to the, she was Teresa of the cross, right? right. She was going to the cross and she knew it and, uh, and maintained, um, and was able to be charitable. I mean, truly charitable to those that she was traveling with who were understandably so desperate. I mean, she was taking care of the kids in the camps and the train stops, brushing their hair and making sure they were fit. Cause these Mothers were just distraught over what and who can blame them. Yeah, there's a there's a survivor in the camp who's quoted in the study that you sent me from Endow. Mm -hmm. And the survivor said it was yeah. Edith Stein's complete calm and self-possession that marked her out from the rest of the prisoners. There was a spirit of indescribable misery in the camp. The new prisoners especially suffered from extreme anxiety. Edith Stein went among the women like an angel, comforting, helping, and consoling them. Many of the mothers were on the brink of insanity and sat moaning for days without giving any thought to their children. Edith Stein immediately set about taking care of these little ones. She washed them, combed their hair, and tried to make sure they were fed and cared for. There's something beautiful about that as well, right? Edith Stein, who never married, obviously never had her own biological children. Here she's being a spiritual mother, and in many respects, a sort of proxy physical mother to these young children who are destined for the concentration camps as well. Just And the fact that she does this with poise and with grace and with complete love and devotion is just mind-boggling. It's so cool. And she, and I love that line. I, I think it was, it's in the, it's in the endowed study. And, and I think it was a guard who said she, she really was a saint because of the total contrast. And when we think about femininity today and what does it mean to embrace your unique feminine nature, your feminine genius, as John Paul II would say, I mean, this is it. This is, you know, there's so many ways to describe the feminine genius. One of my favorite ways is a crafter of souls and a, and a healer of souls, that the feminine presence is, is a healing presence. Certainly so with Edith Stein in the most trying situation. Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a minute, too, because I think we we maybe maybe for more than a minute. Let's talk about that for a while, because that's <laughs> that's kind of the central part of her her thought. But before before we do that, I found the quote that you were talking about. This is from a Dutch official. Um, who says, from the moment I met her in the, in the camp at Westerbork, I knew here is someone truly great. For a couple of days, she lived in that hellhole, walking, talking, and praying like a saint, and she really was one. That is the only and fitting really way to describe one. this middle-aged woman who struck everyone as so young, who was so whole, and so honest and genuine. During one conversation, she told me, for now, the world consists of opposites, but in the end, none of these contrasts will remain. There will be only the fullness of love. Talking with her was like journeying into another world where for the moment... Westerbork ceased to exist. Mm. And that's, that's amazing. It does not get much better than that. I mean, and, and the fact that this, this person can be in a place that he called a hellhole. I mean, this is as close as, I mean, it, you know, it, to the extent that our imaginations can approximate hell, right? Something that is the total absence of God. Mm -hmm. um, something like a Nazi concentration camp has to be about as close as our imaginations can conceive of that, right? A place where there is no hope, where you're going to your certain death, where you're deprived of all physical comfort, and yet, here is Edith Stein, a uh, Jew turned Catholic, who is with complete poise and grace and patience and courage, ministering to all the people in this camp. 
um, and bringing bringing them the light of Jesus Christ and and showing them, you know, through not just words but even more importantly actions that she really truly is a saint. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's totally amazing. It's amazing. Without bitterness, without anger, without resentment, and when right. you think about how much how much of our days, at least let's say my days, are dominated by those irritations, those annoyances. Oh my goodness, yeah. I was at confession <laughs> so, today, confessing little annoyances as well, right? And. And like, these are little things. I find so many reasons to get mad at my fellow men. Um, None of these reasons approach, you know, my fellow men wanting to exterminate me and my race from the face of the earth. But that's, that's the type of threat that she's facing. And she does it with, with grace. And, you know, I get upset because I don't know, like people cut me off in traffic, right? I mean, this like the, the, the order of magnitude of these things are not even remotely in the same, in the same vein. Um, so, so I just, I, I love that example, but let's go back to your point about feminine identity and being a woman. And I think to do that, we should go back to this question or this issue of phenomenology. So, um, she got involved in the school of phenomenology before she was a Catholic. It's a complicated philosophical term, but I'm going to just read from the study guide here, uh, Simone, sure. for, for sake of brevity and clarity, since I'm not an academic philosopher. Phenomenolo- phenomenology is a philosophical movement founded by the German philosopher Edmund Husserl at the start of the 20th century. Husserl, him- Husserl him- was himself a Jewish convert to Christianity, trained in mathematics, et cetera, et cetera. Let me go on. Um, okay, so uh, for Husserl, this rigorous philosophy was phenomenology. For Husserl, three, these essences are the necessary and unchanging features of the of the experience and can be known to be true it is it's, it is important to recognize that phenomenology rejects the idea that all experiences are merely subjective and personal phenomenology is based on the principle that we can speak of the truth of an experience because we can recognize the objective and universal nature of a human experience as an example if we want to understand marriage using the phenomenological method we might investigate those things that are essential to marriage, those things that make it a marriage and not some other kind of living arrangement. In the Catholic view, things essential to marriage are that it is a union between one man and one woman, that it is unitive, procreate, procreative, and indissoluble. Marriage might involve financial security, but it might not. So that would you know, be not part of the phenomenology of marriage, right? Because it can or cannot be there, and it doesn't, that, that does not make a marriage, right? So... That's, that's, I think, an important backdrop for understanding what Stein said about the human person and what Stein said about a woman, because her approach was to sort of strip away the, um, the extra parts of womanhood or, or personhood or masculinity, femininity, and get down to the core of what those things actually meant. And this got her in trouble early in her career because she, she posited the idea of a gendered soul. Yes. <laughs> and I found this, I found this part of the study absolutely fascinating. And I actually, I can totally see her logic here, um, in, in sort of arguing that there are feminine and masculine souls. Um, but the problem was that made her run afoul of, uh, Thomistic thought and the Thomists. So early in her career, she's a young philosopher, as you mentioned, Simone, a young woman philosopher who already faces an uphill battle in getting positions and respect and publish, you know, publishing opportunities, et cetera. And she posits this idea that is, is counter to um, basically all of Thomistic thought. So she gets a hail of criticism for that. And it really, <laughs> it really kind of depresses her. But the, the admirable, th- admirable thing to me is that she acknowledges, you know, oh, I missed the mark on this one, but I'm going to keep yes. trying and I'm going to be a seeker of truth and I'm going to learn from my mistake and I'm going to, I'm going to keep getting better and better and go on. And so that, that, you know, that early experience of her getting just assailed with criticism from fellow colleagues did not cause her to lose faith. 
uh, you know, faith, like small F faith, like faith in the profession yes. or sort of, you know, she did not lose heart, I should say. Um, she rather pressed on and got better and better um, and, and wrote so much more. I mean, it didn't even, it didn't even cause her to turn away from this idea of what it is a woman. She just said, okay, I guess that's not the right idea. Let's <laughs> reapproach it from this way. Let's find out more about this and sort of establish this idea. So I, I thought that was a, that was a really cool anecdote because it showed her humility, it showed her commitment to truth. Like you were saying, seeker of truth. And then it ultimately showed that she was very, very dedicated to this idea of parsing out masculinity and femininity. And those ideas, of course, deeply, deeply informed St. John Paul II in developing the theology of the body. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah so talk, talk to us a little yeah. more about this, Simone. What was what was Edith Stein's contribution here? Or there were many of them, but what, what are some of the highlights that we can take away? Well, it's so fascinating getting to know her because, gosh, I don't even know where to start with the with the humility part because on the one hand, she's with these kind of big name philosophers but because she's barred from being a university professor, which, you know, in, in light of justice, she ought to have been, is, you know, she, she makes this proposal for a feminine soul. Uh, but then when when the Thomists oppose her, she can't even really she can't really even be in those academic circles kind of engaging in that dialogue because she was barred from a lot of those philosophical circles. So that's it's just. I just wanted to point out, it's so frustrating because you've got the intellect for it. You're being mentored by it, right? But you're, you know, you don't have access to those conversations. So there's the first kind of humiliation. And then, yes, like you mentioned, the humility of, okay, I want to learn St. Thomas. She's primarily a philosopher, not a theologian, and felt inadequate. So she felt like a failure. I mean, gosh, her contribution is monumental. Um, but her personal experience is one of failure, especially during the controversial times with the feminine soul. And then also uh, realizing her limitation and her gap of not knowing Thomas and not really being able to investigate um, the science of theology as deeply as she would have wanted because she was barred from those. So I, I just, I really appreciated very much when I was getting to know her, how on a human level and as a woman, she must have felt like <laughs> I can, I can take these conversations on, but I'm not really given the opportunity to, and then I can't even really not defend myself. I don't think that was her stance, but, you know, have those conversations. It, the conversation about me is going on without me. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, it's, so I, to me, it's almost like, it's like, it's, it's akin to, uh, to someone today, you know, articulating a controversial, but um, you know, sound in argument, uh, position on like medium, you know, the self-publishing site mm -hmm. and then the New York times publishing like a round table of quote experts to de debunk and discredit this theory yeah. without, without giving the original author of the article room to respond. Right. So it's just like, you exactly. know, you, you publish in a small time journal or you write a, a short book or something, and then everyone responds in all of these fora in which you're not allowed to participate. Super frustrating. It's super frustrating. And, and what's beautiful. And again, another point of humility with her is that she has this intuition that she's setting something up and she says that she's setting something up for someone in the future to build on. And that someone else is John Paul II. In Which the is theology of the body. so cool. I mean, <laughs> that gives me shivers too. Exactly. It totally gives if she, she had this intuition that th this isn't where it was ending. And so when, you know, that, that old phrase of, 
you know, the, behind every man is a great woman. I mean, th- this is Edith Stein supporting John Paul II, who who fulfilled a lot of what she was trying to do. And I think the question, again, I'm not a philosopher, but she, what's, you know, what's uh, true about what she, first of all, the fact that she's paying attention to the fact that women are different. <laughs> because even at that time, this question of gender was a problem, not a problem in a negative sense, but something to be solved. Um, and yes, we share a universal human nature, which, you know, Thomistic philosophy can go into and all of that. But there is something different about men and women. Is it limited to just our physical bodies? There is something about the feminine soul, but we can't say that there is a feminine soul and gender, like you said earlier. So, you know, it's something to investigate. And she was willing to go there and investigate it. So, yeah. So what were her conclusions coming out of that? And I know that, you know, it depends on kind of where we look at her writing and her intellectual uh, journey and development. But obviously John Paul II took some really key ideas from her about what it is to be a woman. So let's take the phenomenological approach here and say, <laughs> uh, you know, just, just at least in principle, not necessarily in, in the like actual phenomenology, but let's just say to the basics, like what to her is a woman and what does distinguish a woman from a man? Well, I mean, she has these categories and again, they're, it's, you know, we, we don't want, she's not a, she's not a stereotype, right? She's, she's a woman talking about the feminine soul, but she's also this philosopher and her mother too. I mean, her mother was a a mom and in the best sense of the word, but running a business on her own, you know, so there it's beyond these kind of stereotypical categories, but you know, she says here that um, the positive feminine quality is this tendency toward union um, a dedication towards developing others to completion. So that's kind of what I was saying earlier about this kind of crafter of souls, um, an orientation toward the whole person. You know, we kind of see that when we, you know, you know, mom kind of notices what's going on with the whole household or like the female in the room with the company, meaning who's like noticing so-and-so's having a bad day. And maybe that's um, contributing to the bad business practice. I mean, again, these are minutia stereo can be kind of stereotypical, but I mean, there is something that, you know, I noticed when I've worked in companies that have a female presence or not, there is a difference in the dynamic. And I think Edith Stein is, is getting on that. She says that women have a special capacity for empathy that, that men don't. Um, she says for the men, there is a tendency towards detachment, a little bit more on, on the objectivity, a dedication to discipline, orientation towards specialization. So while while women have that kind of int- capacity for the whole, men have that capacity to kind of hone in to to the to the specialization. Um, so you know, she she is she is for the phenomenological is her again. I'm not a phenomenologist, but this it, the experience of femaleness and maleness is different, and she's trying to kind of put these in philosophical categories. So she gets it quote wrong with this this feminine soul thing. Um, you know, as distinct from a masculine soul, but she is right in that the way that human nature as a woman is expressed is different than a man. Yeah. And I think that's so important. I mean, going back to this idea that she's a saint for our times, uh, I mean, <laughs> right? what, what saint is not a saint for our times, first of all, right. But true, but so much of our conversation today is about gender and, yes. uh, and, you know, so-called gender ideology that the, that even Pope Francis has decried. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think it's so refreshing to hear from someone like Edith Stein who advocates for 
um, what we could say is a you know positive sort of differential view of men and women, right? Uh, on the one yeah. hand, uh, for for so much of history, and this is what people talk about when they say the patriarchy, right? The yeah. def- the defining paradigm in a patriarchal system is that women are inferior to men. Uh, this has been uh, believed for millennia. Uh, not universally, of course. I mean, there are matriarchal societies, for example, but by and large, mm-hmm. like the dominant, uh, the dominant sort of model between the sexes uh, in Western history has been patriarchal. I think we can just acknowledge that. Um, but then, on the other hand, right, the, the the rebound from that, and this is you know the sexual revolution that is you know gives birth to the new egalitarianism. This is modern feminism. Um, the, it, it embraces this idea that there is actually no distinction between the sexes. And that mm-hmm. is equally devastating because it totally ignores the unique gift of the sexes. And so, like, let's take these. Let's take a very common, practical example, um, and talk about gender diversity in a corporate boardroom. The common argument today is that uh, we need diversity in a corporate boardroom because women have been traditionally excluded from this, and women are just as capable as men at all of the things that men do well. So, there's no reason that a board should not be fifty-fifty men and women. Um, so that, I mean, the, the, the facts of the matter, the facts that I just said are certainly true. Men are just as capable, women are just as capable as men at running a business, et cetera. But the, I think that like that simplistic way of approaching this misses the mark. And it's what you were saying about, you know, in a business, you've seen it when you've worked in a business that if there's not a feminine presence in the business, it's going to be a differently run business than if there is. And so the argument here is that women actually bring something fundamentally different to the table from men. And that should be valued and respected. And, and it's, a, it's the same idea that you also see in the, um, in the like comp- continued pressure to get women out of the home and put them into the workforce. You know, the idea is they're just as capable as men at doing this. And so we need to get them there. But that assumes that the, you know, the sort of um, the preferential mode of existence is in the workforce and not in the home, right? It overlooks the value that a parent can bring and specifically a mother can bring in the home, raising and cultivating her children, et cetera. And that's important to recognize. Now, of course, Edith Stein was not saying that every woman needs to be at home. As you mentioned, her mom was a businesswoman. Edith Stein was of course an unmarried childless philosopher, right? So, so the the argument is clearly not like (laughs) every woman just needs to be a stay at home mom and, you know, submit to her husband, et cetera. That's not what she's saying at all. What she is arguing for is a differentiation between the sexes that articulates a positive conception of the woman who's imbued with these feminine qualities that are not the same thing as masculine qualities. And we need to recognize and appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, she takes for granted that women can do any job out there. Right. You know, and this is like, why is this a controversial thing? Like she takes it for granted, you know, in the early 20th century. Yeah. And when she's (laughs) she's asked to give these lectures about women in the workforce and the nature. And she's like, why do you want me to keep talking about that? I mean, it's obvious women can do any job. What she's trying to do is to point out that unique feminine femininity that that women can bring to the table contra masculinity. So (laughs) no, that's that's so good. And I think I mean, she in that sense, she was like 50 to 60 years ahead of her time. Um, I mean, she was seeing like, uh, you know, the um, the pushes for suffrage in various Western countries, including the United States. She was, she was watching this. So, so she could in that way sort of see these reliable indicators of what was to come. But I, I love the fact that she's like, guys, you're asking the wrong question. Like let's move past this. Can women do everything men can do? Of course they can. 
Stop being silly. That's a that's a silly question to ask because it's quite frankly the wrong question. The right question is what makes women different from men, right? Like right. let's let's assume for for a moment their professional capacities are equal. Great. Got it. Good. Let's now step back and say what can we appreciate about women? And the problem is in this modern gender ideology that we've just totally overlooked any appreciation of the respective strengths of masculinity and femininity and the importance of um, of those conceptions to our own self-understanding as human persons who are made in the image of God. Exactly. Even, the, I mean, the modern feminist movement, and I know there's all sorts of distinctions and what level of feminism and different categories, but is, is itself in many ways against women because you're again, taking away that special femininity, that special quality by just trying to make a woman like a man. Well, Edith Stein is saying, no, there is something special and I don't need, this is different. It's different. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Look, it's something different. It looks different. And she even went on to make that controversial point about a different soul, which again was rejected, but still she, I mean, that's how distinct they are. And and I I think you said it best and they're just asking the wrong questions. It's just definitely not about whether women can be engineers or not. Precisely. And it's it's not, it's, and it's not only about, you know, anatomy and it's not only about self-conception, which is why the modern conversations about like gender and biological sex also just are asking the wrong questions. I, I will yep. say that there's, there's promise, I think on this point, you know, there are some voices of sanity on this. Like surprisingly, I would say JK Rowling, you know, I've wrote about her recently in her, um, you know, she's what, 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 Very uh, surprising. yeah, she's what some call a turf. A, I, can't, I can't even say these terms with a straight face, a trans exclusionary radical feminist. And, and by, what a compliment, what a compliment by that people of course mean, uh, actually I shouldn't say of course it's not self-evident, but that means that this is a feminist who is called radical because that feminist rejects, um, the claims to femininity on the part of biological men who are in their own self-conception women, if I explain that correctly. I oh think, boy. I, I think I got that. It's, <laughs> it's kind of an alphabet soup, but uh, the point is, JK, well, JK Rowling's point is, like there's something unique about women and the experience of women in the world and the way that women live in the world and act in the world that is a different quality from someone who is born a biological male and thinks of themselves as a woman, right? That's like, that's JK Rowling's contention there. And she's very careful to articulate. I am not transphobic. I am not a hater of trans people. I'm not against trans rights, all of this stuff. But her, her fundamental contention, I think is not too different fundamentally from what Edith Stein is saying about how there's something unique about a woman. Um, so there's yes. that. I mean, there's also this, like, I think it's called third wave feminism or neo-feminism. Yes. Um, but this idea that like a lot of the sort of women's rights movements uh, in the last half of the 20th century, um, especially the uh, the pro-choice, pro-abortion movement has overlooked the unique capacity of women um, and the unique sort of vocation of women as um, as mothers uh, and nurturers and, and all of the various things that women can bring to the table in that regard. So there's there are signs of hope there. But I think, you know, all of these all of these different schools of thought draw on the work of people like Edith Stein and perhaps Edith Stein foremost among them. Um, she was a building block, as you mentioned, for John Paul II in articulating this positive conception of woman as something fundamentally different from man, um, but not inferior and not superior, but something fundamentally different and, and indeed complementary in a way that 
that, um, you know, we have failed to appreciate historically. Yes, we have this cultural problem that if it looks different, that it's somehow one is inferior, one is superior, but can just be looking different. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't have to mean more or less or better or worse or superior or inferior. I mean, that's, and that's where I love when she writes about, and, and she's talking about faith and that a woman and femininity about a woman going into a workplace by her very presence should transform the workplace, but only if she's strong enough in her femininity. And that is, and what she's saying is, is that it's so easy for I, I mean, this is how I read it as a woman that's worked in a secular workforce, the dominated by men experience sexism, whatever, is that if you are really secure in your femininity, you don't have to worry about making it look like masculinity because you will transform it by your presence of woman's presence transforms wherever she goes. If she is, has cultivated that genius. well. So, yeah. And I think anyone who's worked in a, you know, large, um, sort of large workforce or a large corporation has seen that. Right. I, I think like, let, if we're being honest with ourselves, we've seen that happen, um, in just the interpersonal dynamics in, in meetings, um, conference rooms, whatever the case is. Um, one, one thing that always comes to my mind though, when we're talking about these types of questions, Simone is, you know, these sound a little bit like, um, uh, these sound a little bit like, you know, stereotypes, I guess, right? If we're defining, um, yes. and what's <laughs> it's the, it's hard uh, not to make them sound like stereotypes because we talk in limited words. Yeah, right? exactly. The, and and so where phenomenology is good because the experience is what, right, exactly. And so I think this is, um, this is a, a sort of critique that's worth responding to, um, as far as, you know, what, what she means by this, right? How is this different from, what what uh what modernists today call gender expression because there's this um i don't know if you <laughs> i'm even hesitant I'm, he I'm hesitant to mention this to uh to listeners but they should probably know it's out there i don't know if you've heard of the gender bread person um no yeah ge gender bread <laughs> so if you go to genderbread.org you'll see this graphic and uh and it's 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 a way to sadly it's a way to explain to children uh, all these um ridiculous ideas about uh gender ideology and oh, this says that the our gender identity is our self-conceptualization of who we are, right? In our brains. Our attraction is who we love. Our sex is basically our anatomical parts. And then our gender expression is how, oh. we, how, we, um, how we sort of behavioralize or act on those various aspects of identity, attraction, and sex. Um, this is stressful. I'm right, already yeah. stressed out. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think the um, the critique of Edith Stein is that she is is prescribing these neat binaries of gender expression, right? And that the reality of identity and attraction and sex um, is far more far more complicated than that. So, how do we respond to that assertion that all she's talking about is gender expression? And we've been there, done that. We know that not every woman feels the, feels like being a nurturing person. Not every woman wants to be a mom, right? Not every dad wants to be in the workforce. Some dads want to be stay at home dads, et cetera. How do you respond to that? Well, I think you have to read her and look at her essays to women, but truly John hold, Paul hold on. II. Let me, let me just pause you right there. So you yeah. have to, you have to read a philosophical idea to adequately <laughs> respond to it. 
I think it's a good idea, but we don't really have a culture of that. We, <laughs> exactly. we, our, our, you know, our biases are too strong. Our opinions are too strong. I, intelle- I intellectual work, to, uh, it's, it's a long-term thing. We're like short-term things. Yeah, I tend to think <laughs> in like hot 280 character tweets. I, I just, <laughs> I try to get my arguments exactly. in that form. Yeah. Okay, I cut you off. I'm sorry. Exactly. No, no, I, I, you're cracking me up here. Um, because it, I find that temptation myself, especially with all of the kind of civil unrest and political polarization, I find myself tempted to quickly make my quick judgments and not do the work that needs to be done. Anyway, but I would say that that ultimate question is answered in theology of the body. And I think that anyone who seriously I mean, I think Weigel, George Weigel's right. It's a theological time bomb waiting to go off. And we have barely scratched the surface. And as things in the culture continue to um, fall apart, theology of the body will become more and more relevant because John Paul II was right. All of the problems we're experiences are experiencing are ultimately a problem of anthropology, a problem of human human dignity and understanding that the person is has value and has dignity made in the image and likeness of God and has is a sub is a moral subject res- and has to make it ultimately a response to the happiness and the truth that he's seeking and is not as the as and and you know this this is something that Weigel talks about all the time because John Paul II had to deal with communism all the time is that we're not economic subjects that's not the the definition of our being. We're moral subjects called to be in communion with each other and with God in in relationships of love. So for the person who's really grappling with who am I? Am I love? Do I have dignity? How do I think of myself, gender, sex, all these categories on, on, on that website? I think your opposition to, or your seeming opposition to Edith Stein, if you really have an opposition to it, you need to give theology of the body a real a real examination. So I, I want to tie the knot on one thing that we mentioned before, um, as we come back to the example, life and death of St. Edith Stein. Um, you mentioned that her martyrdom is controversial or it's, it's controversial to call her a martyr. Can you say more yes. about that? Cause I think this is an important thing to think about. I mean, she's, she's, um, she's an amazing woman and, but even still sometimes, uh, the Catholic church has been criticized for calling her a martyr when she was, one of the millions of Jewish people caught up and killed in the Holocaust. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the the canonization tribunal dealt with this, and there's certainly in the endowed study the document where you can kind of, if you're really passionate about this controversy, you want to argue with the church on if she should rightly be called a martyr. But the reason for her specific arrest was because the Catholic bishops in Holland had come out against Nazism. Interestingly, the, the 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 Jewish people who had converted to Protestantism, I guess the Protestant community hadn't really taken as strong a stance as the Catholic one. So classic, they were, classic. <laughs> so they were like, let go, which is weird. I mean, if you're a Nazi and you're like, OK, you're a Jew who's a Protestant instead of a Jew who's a Catholic. But since the Protestant people didn't. OK, you, you Jews who are Protestants, you can you can go Catholic stay. I mean, it's just kind of weird, but not that you can ever really understand what's going on in the minds of Nazis. But anyhow, um, the point is, is that she was specifically arrested because of the Catholic bishops outrage in Holland. 
Yeah, that makes um, sense. I, I remember uh, reading in the study, because like you said, this is covered there. The bishop yes. had, this, had this pretty strong um, condemnation that, in, that he required to be read from the pulpit. Um, yes. Which was, was, uh, was cool to see that the bishop was taking a strong stance like that. And then I think it was that night that the Nazis said, okay, we're going to round up all Jewish converts to Catholicism uh, because even the Catholics are against us. Right. And I mean, I just, this is one of my big historical pet peeves when people criticize the Pope and criticize the church for not standing up for the Jews more. I mean, 80% of Rome's Jews were saved uh, because Pius Twelfth hid them in his castle in the Vatican. Uh, and even the chief rabbi of Rome, uh, because of the witness of Pius XII, converted and took took the Pope's first name as his confirmation name. So when when there are those criticisms about the, the the Catholics Catholics and the Pope not doing enough for the Jews, I mean, I think it's people that really don't haven't looked at history. And any time that the Catholic bishops did stand up, as they did in Holland, there were ret there was retribution. So there was a lot of prayer and prudential judgments on when to speak and when to be silent because people's lives were at stake. Um, there's a headline from the New York Times in 1942 that read Pius XII, sole voice of the Jews in Europe. So I don't know what what more we need in terms of historical evidence that the church was doing everything she could to save the Jews. Yeah, that's, that's well said. And uh, I think the example of St. Edith Stein, who obviously was Jewish, um, but a, a Catholic convert, um, is inspiring for a number of reasons because, well, and it fits with just what you were saying, because this was a Catholic who was very committed to her people and to saving her people in the face of this monstrosity that was yes. uh, Nazism. And as we mentioned, I mean, we, we uh, read about her grace on display, even in the midst of the concentration camps. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's hard to fathom exactly what that was like, but we can look to her as an example, you know, an example of, like you said, a seeker of truth, uh, someone who was full of charity and zeal for her fellow men and women, uh, and someone who ultimately was animated by a love of Christ to the very end. I mean, so confident was she that when she was going to the concentration camp, she could just say, we were heading east because she knew that she was headed home. Well, Simone, I don't think I mentioned that you have just recently finished uh, leading a study for Endow Groups on St. Edith Stein. I did mention the study, but I didn't mention that you were one of the leaders of it. Um, yes. And so I would encourage my listeners, uh, especially women, but I think men as well, right? For this yes, study. Yes, absolutely. Um, to check out Endow Groups. So E-N-D-O-W groups.org. Um, as I mentioned, Simone gave me a, a publication review copy of this study, and it's really, really fantastic. I was expecting it to be good, Simone, but I was not expecting the depth of, of thought and care that went into this. It's very well written, very well done. Yes. I, I, th I think it was um, three people who collaborated on the writing of it. Um, but it's, it's yes. very high quality stuff. I really appreciate the review copy and I definitely recommend it to my listeners and go check out endowgroups.org. Again, Simone's the director of program growth there. So if you join the program, uh, you know, you're helping her grow it. So you're helping her do her job as well. <laughs> thank uh, you, Zach. Appreciate well, it. Simone, thanks so much for it. Yeah, exactly. I don't think you will either because this study is really, really solid stuff uh, and you'll learn a ton. I learned a ton reading through it and I'm really even more inspired by the example of Edith Stein. And uh, I want to learn more about her, read more about her. Uh, would love to watch a, uh, maybe a Terrence Malick film one day on her life. I think that'd be really cool. Hey, yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe one day we can hope. Uh, but Simone, thanks so much for joining me for this episode. We'll have you back again soon. Maybe, uh, like I mentioned, for that Theology of the Body series. So we'll have to talk offline about that and see if we could, uh, you know, put it into a coherent 
four to six episode series where we could give people a good introduction to theology of the body and and all the depth contained therein. So let's talk about that. In the meantime, listeners, if you want to reach out to me for any comments, questions, Z-A-C at creedalcatholic.com, Zach at creedalcatholic.com. If you want to get in touch with Simone, I'd be happy to put you in touch as well. Just get in touch with me, Zach at creedalcatholic.com. And until next time, God bless you.